for you with Envy, that was so nice. Is she a drinker? Every year, on or about March 17th, sounds like this erupt on city streets around the world in celebration of an Irish fellow from 1,600 years or so back in time named Patrick. Sounds like fun. And by all accounts, it is, but I have a few questions. Why do big celebrations like this persist year after year after year around the world? Can a spectacle like the St. Patrick's Day Parade and Festival be more than just a giant yearly party? Can an arts festival actually improve a town, a city, any community? More specifically, because we're in the middle of a Change the Story series on arts and aging, could community events like this improve how a community or even an entire country meets the challenges of its rapidly aging population? Can Community arts events and strategies help community clinics, hospitals, social service agencies, senior centers, neighborhood associations, and even funders find common ground in their work with older citizens. And by the way, what is creative aging and why is it being studied and embraced by public health leaders, gerontologists, and brain scientists across the planet and by big research programs like the Global Brain Health Institute, or GBHI as it's called? And finally, how is it that artists like our last episode's guest, Veronica Rojas, and this week's guest, Dominic Campbell, have a prominent place at GBHI as Institute Fellows? If these questions pique your interest, have a listen. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, making things happen. Dominic, welcome to the show, let me begin by asking you to describe what you do, your path in the world. Yeah, so so how I describe myself is a more complicated question for me than it should be, really. But I tend to say sometimes I make things happen, and sometimes the things that I do make things happen. And I always make things with other people. And that's been true for a while, so I'd use that way of explaining myself. Other times I say... I am a cultural producer. I used to say I'm a creative producer because I produce creative work. But I think I do something a little bit different, partly because I produce many different creative works at one time, but also it's about the space between creative projects. So it's more about the culture. So it's about creating the environment in which ideas can emerge, whether they are creative ideas or strategy ideas or towards something like a... a social development goal or a change in the perception of people or reduction of trauma they're about creating culture from which things evolve so a follow-up how did you come to that path what took you there so it's carnival really I, yeah so how did i come to this work it, by a long and meandering road without a clear plan and if i think back to what was key one was learning to leave the town that i grew up in quite seriously so that kind of helped, trying to get out. And where was that? Uh, I'm born in northern England. I'm born in a place called Crewe, and, which is a railway town, as in it was built for the railway. So it has the oldest railway hotel. And I'm built with the sound of trains in my background all the time, which probably explains a lot. But I wanted to leave there. I wanted to go and see the world. But I just wanted to get out of the town. And 
that partly led to going to art college. So I'm still the only person in my family, and there are two generations later to go to third-level education. But what I also did was work with companies who eventually led to me building Carnival in London and then Notting Hill, but then also in the Caribbean. And Carnival in the Caribbean was transformative, I think, because on the one hand, there was this thing that happens when you you put on a mask or a hat or a fancy costume and you become something else you're allowed to become something else an individual but there was also seeing what that did across a group of people or a society and also what that had done over time so what i loved about being in the caribbean watching carnival evolve over the weeks and months leading up to it was that there was a place that you could get involved in this year's carnival regardless of whether you're rich or poor you wanted to join the fancy people you could do that if you were all about your neighborhood you could do that if you wanted to make some of your kids you could do that if you wanted to process you could do that this extraordinary um structure of creativity had evolved in a way that encompassed all of that and it enabled people to maintain their own mental health it enabled them to have a say about the world that they found themselves in it had all sorts of elements of play and profundity and creativity and chaos within a very simple structure. And most of what I do in some way draws from Carnival, the idea that transformation is possible, that you can imagine a world that you want to move into, and that some things can take time. So, Dominic, something just rose up for me in the middle of your saying this. Your description of Carnival is basically an equal access, all come on down, everybody's invited kind of environment. And then, as you describe how healthy that equal access, y'all come mm. way of thinking about your community, in some ways it says, well, democratized culture is a wellness strategy. Yeah. I spend a lot of time watching the results of people hiding away from things they're frightened of, whether that's death, dying, grief, and loss because of the work I'm doing in the Hospice Foundation, or Alzheimer's because of the work I do in that area or old age because of the work in that area and what I realized was it's as true for adults as it is for small terrified children if you don't look clearly at the thing under the bed or in the wardrobe you become more frightened of it so how do you bring that into the center of your attention and all of those self-made festivities that's what they enable people to do they enable people to talk about the thing that they're not sure about they enable them to bring it from the side of their eyes into the front and they make fun of it and they bring it down to size and they it's lots of tricks there's stuff going on in there and you're doing it with a whole bunch of people at the same time so i think what those type of celebrations can be is prototypes for the way that people want to live and you go to a festival to try new food to try new music why not ways that you want to live why can't you make a little bit of a temporary utopia in time and place? And yes. that's a thing worth getting down to bed to do every day. Yeah, and here's a vote for turning the temporary utopia into enough of a way of life so that its impact is sustained. Yeah, Absolutely. So there's a thing in education that people, they just turn away from, not even turn away, they have no interest in education, there, it's not even apathy, it's before apathy, because there's no sense of what that feels like, no sense of what it feels like to learn. We are feeling machines that think, not thinking machines that feel, say, the Damasios. 
If we can't feel what it's like to flourish, we can't feel what it's like to learn a new thing, we can't feel that enriching, why would we do that? And so I think festivals, at their best, when you get it right, celebrations, it could be a bake sale, it could be a any tiny little thing, birthday party. When they get it right, what they do is allow people to feel different, to feel differently, yeah. to sense make. And that plants a seed that you can, you know what it feels like, so you come back to it. It's a way to navigate where you go next. And to feel different together. So yeah. that story is not lost when you go back yeah. into your cave, but it lives and actually has a life beyond the people that were even there in the first place, mm. which is a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. As is your story, which has many chapters and a lot of interesting characters, but there's one that I think pretty much everyone knows. I believe his name is St. Patrick. My understanding is that there was a time in the 1990s when the St. Patrick's Festival Parade in Dublin, Ireland, was mainly comprised of Irish-American marching bands. But that began to change in 1999 when you took over as the artistic director of the festival. I got that right? So yes, the processional element grows from New York City in the 1870s. It's a walk down the street by people who are displaced, saying, we are here and we belong. And so those American marching bands would come to Ireland and that would be the context of the parade. That's where it came from. And by the late 1990s, that tradition was mismatched with where the culture was of this emerging Irish economy. And what I was able to do with it was keep the ambition of making a moment in time that celebrated the city. But I could also commission artists that work with young people or old people or ranges of communities from difficult zip codes. And they could dress as kings and queens and they could walk down the street and go, I have a sense of belonging, a sense of taking over the city. So in a way, what I was doing, partly knowledgeably, was playing with that tradition. We would play with what the festival did in different parts of the city. So it, what event would go where? Because this is a city that's very storied. So people would, uh, you know, they would talk about a certain part of the city and you go, you don't go there, it's a terrible place. And they may never have been there, but you could put a different kind of event there or a different kind of celebration and it would lay a story onto place and it would transform place in exactly the same way as if you wear a mask or a hat, you can become someone else. And the mental health benefits of that and the societal benefits of that led to all the things that I did consequently. That was St. Patrick's Festival at the time. There was 1.25 million people in a city of 4 million. There's 23 million people watching online before there was an online, so it was broadcast by radio and television, but pre-internet. And it was just very intense and extraordinarily exciting. But after a while, it just began to feel like scale. And I'm not interested in scale, I'm interested in what that enables to happen. Part two, Bieltana and GBHI. So it sounds like you were done with that. So what ensued post St. Patrick? And so I took over four different jobs at the same time while I figured out what I wanted to do. I did some work with the Abbey Theatre on their education department, which eventually led to a thing called the Theatre of Symposia and did a thing about theatre of conflict. And we brought artists working in conflict zones from all around the world to Dublin to talk to each other, which was an extraordinary thing. I ran a rural arts festival and I took over something called the Bieltana Festival. So Bieltana is 
the Irish word for spring. And it was a festival that was started by a charity, an NGO, whose particular interest was ageing populations, creating the opportunity for older people to be involved in all areas of social, cultural and political life. And they'd started a festival maybe five or six years before, and it was a little arts festival. And then over eight years, I started to play with it and grew it so that by the time I left in 2014, it was three and a half thousand events each year during the month of May. There would be 750 plus partners and they would range from medical organisations, GPs, hospitals, age sector, charities, NGOs, community groups, activists, artists, cultural sectors. So a whole range of different kinds of organisations would fit within this one receptacle, which was a festival. And what happened between them was really significant. So we used to think about it, and perhaps the easiest way of thinking about it, is it was a festival that could cope with people's different geographies. So, so you could get involved if your geography was the table on your hospital bed, or if you could make it meeting room in the residential care centre, or you could make it to the community centre, or you were an artist on an international touring circuit. So you mentioned your desire to move beyond the reflexive impulse to scale, the idea that, you know, bigger is better. As as you built Bieltana, what did you want the festival to spark in the community? All of those things would fit into a celebration of creativity as we age. And all of those things collectively would be an inquiry or would ask questions about what aging was, who got to express themselves in Liz Lerman's quote, phrase, what, where, when and why. Yeah, how we envisaged a place where successful aging could take part, what that would look like. And from that Irish event, there are now 14 similar festivals around the world. And I left that to form Creative Aging International and to explore the idea of celebration strategy, really. But also to revisit this idea that when I started with Bialtana, I fondly imagined that old age was a place of common ground. It was a place where we'd all meet. As we got frail and older, we would all meet. And then that doesn't happen, I don't think, now. I think we get old for different reasons, uh, become challenged by age, depending on how much of a comfort blanket we can make by wealth and by opportunity. And so, once again, I start to find myself thinking about these questions I'm really lucky in that what I do is I make things as a way of understanding the world. And I tend to work through celebration or festival or big complicated events. And I usually come back to the same kind of principles and the same kind of strategy. So one of the things that rises up for me a lot is that I work with artists who in various ways, like yourself, find their way to a particular relationship with the creative process and the communities in which they live or the people that they care about. And one of the primary motivating forces for this is that very early on, there's a recognition, something really powerful is happening here. And of course, we all live in societies in the West where the art part of our community life is often given short shrift. So when the artist says, 
I think we've got something quite extraordinary going here. You get patted on the head, and it occurs to me, particularly my interaction with GBHI, is that there is now a growing uh, group of people in neuroscience who are saying, boy, are you right. (laughs) The things that happen when we age are very complicated and in many cases mysterious, but cause-effect seems to tell us that what you've been involved in, Dominic, is not a sideshow. It's more and more a central focus of people in neuroscience and in gerontology who are saying, yeah, we've got more and more people that are dealing with issues of aging, and and this is a viable, powerful, central resource. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah, I, there's so many ways into this conversation. So it, one would be that there's this sort of strange split between artists and scientists or creators and scientists, and it's not particularly useful. I think what's more useful is to think about curiosity and the tools that we have for asking questions. And so the Global Brain Health Institute, which is the thing you referred to, started in 2016. It was a fully funded fellowship in two sites, so one in Trinity College Dublin, one in University College San Francisco. And its initial starting point was the neuroscience faculty in those sites who had a particular interest in Alzheimer's and dementia, wanted to make a broader college, a broader group of people thinking about how to reduce the impact of Alzheimer's and dementia worldwide. And I wandered in the door because they wanted somebody from the arts and cultural section, and I was really interested in that, and I needed a fellowship, surprisingly. It was a very nice thing to be able to do, to spend a year or two years, as it turned out, thinking. But what also happened was I got to interact with people who were very passionate and committed to their work and would have followed a particular route into a very narrow focus. So they would be looking at not just the brain, but an area of the brain and not just an area of brain, but a particular part of the brain and its function and the way that worked. And I got to understand a lot more about the biology and the chemistry, and the, but also the tools that people had for making understanding. So the skull caps people are familiar with and the big roundy machines that look like Star Wars but sound like a tractor, the MRI scanners. And to be able to sit in that company was a real privilege because what began to happen is I developed a better understanding of what and how they thought and what they were trying to do and the pros and cons of that. And they got some sense of mine. So simply being in that kind of collegiate environment was really fantastic and it did two things it gave me a better understanding of the limitations of my own practice but also on the potential of it and when you look at a global scale you realize that in somewhere that doesn't have a high economy or a highly developed public health service of whatever whether that's a market driven one or a state supported one or an insurance one those populations will be challenged if people are able to live longer by the diseases of older age or diseases associated with older age and so culture and its baby sister creativity really are really vital 
first one. Second one is in high income countries where there is such a service, those services don't necessarily get to the heart of the matter. They are fantastic at mending broken bones. They are brilliant at fixing some things, but they're pretty rubbish at addressing issues of the spirit. And they're really rubbish at dealing with dying and things that can't be fixed. In fact, their whole framework, I'd argue, their concept of what dying is, causes them to go into a kind of breakdown. So an acute system is all about fixing and maintaining people, keeping people alive. When people get to the point where staying alive is not the optimal journey of the spirit, I suppose, to use that language, then that system really doesn't know what to do and the people that are around that individual kind of go into shock, but the whole system goes into shock. So hanging out with scientists means <laughs> this interesting place where I'm now thinking about the life of the spirit, which I wouldn't have used that language 10 years ago, but it has. And having a better sense of the need for intelligent and compassionate humans of all sorts to try and work together to solve or address or do something to make better the complicated world in which we now live. So in many ways you're describing a kind of a new relationship that has been forged by a foundation, some investments. But the lovely thing is that it's not a shotgun wedding. It may have been at first, but it is born fruit to the point where you have some scientists who are as passionate about what I think many artists understand and know about the power of create human creativity and its relationship to the spirit, the body, the mind. Why do you think that happened? And where do you see it going? So Chuck Feeney, who founded Duty Free Shops, and whose money founded the Global Brain Health Institute and the Atlantic Fellowship, which is a bigger global fellowship. He said this really smart thing. He said, it's always just people in the room, which is a really lovely way of thinking that everything is always just people in the room. Who gets into that room, where the room is? That's a question to think about. But most things are sorted out by people. One of the things I've noticed is that a lot of those scientists artists, journalists, lawyers, whoever ends up on that fellowship, have some personal motivation. It's their dad who had Alzheimer's, it's their grandmother, it's somebody who's emotionally important to them. And so that means that their emotional journeys are echoing each other. And that's no small thing to think about. What motivates people and what it is that's get them out of bed each week. So that's a big part of what I think is happening. Also, we are making things in 2023. We are dealing with the realities of the world in which we live. I'm talking to you from Dublin, Ireland, and you're far across the other side of the planet. We're able to use technology that never existed. We've just gone through, together and separately, a global pandemic where I was able to talk to Maori friends in New Zealand in the middle of the pandemic about how this was similar to previous experience they would have had and how it was different simply because we could check in with each other and talk to each other so we don't live in the same situation that we inherit from our grandparents we live in this place where now we get to caretake for a while and 
Then the third thing that I think is worth bringing into this is one of the things that I love about working in the arts or being an artist or whatever I might be at the moment is that art evolves, it changes shape. The kind of artist that I would be interested in might not make objects, they might be playing with ideas or relationships or they might be thinking about something like social acupuncture. Joseph Boyce thought about social acupuncture. What's the thing that you can do that reorganizes the relationship between people or people and planet or people and planet and place or can be a mechanic for thinking about materiality and physical experience and spiritual experience and political experience all at the same time. And one of the lovely things about the label artist is it's a passport to go and think on your own or think on your own with other people. I have a friend who's a war artist who was in Afghanistan and was stopped at a checkpoint by, I think, American or British soldiers. And they said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm the war artist. And they went, oh, that's okay, come in. I love the idea that you're an artist. It's like a passport to be curious. It's a kind of permission. And that role, individually or collectively, is really valuable, particularly perhaps at the moment when, you know, when other forms of communication and connection are not really doing their job of connecting, but more doing the job of disrupting and dividing. So there's a, a proliferating cast of superheroes that are out there in the cinema. Mm. And I've always had a fun time thinking about the superheroes that I know that aren't on the screen, they're actually in the real world. And, and what are their powers? And one of the powers of the creative superheroes that, I'm, that I know is that, number one, they're highly skilled at what they do, and they have a deep understanding of its impact that most people don't. And in fact, their position in society puts them in such a situation that they are either taken for granted or not even seen completely, which can be a superpower because nobody is threatened. Mm. And so in, in a meeting of, of executives or people in the criminal justice system or whatever, when the artist does speak up, says, well, here's a way to think about it that maybe hadn't crossed your mind. It comes in a way that is not threatening, but given sometimes inc an incredible insight into something that, mm. that people had, had never thought about. And I think at the same time, it's also, they are able to convene. So they are able to bring different kinds mm. of people into conversation or into practice yeah. with each other. Yeah. Yeah. In a safe way. Mm. Yeah. And in some cases, giving people an opportunity to do something that gets them to a place that is quite useful mm. and can provide and reveal new ways of thinking about things that was not set up exactly for that purpose. Mm. So people can be allowed to come into their intuition and the sub-parts of their conscious that, that are usually put to the side when they're in their authoritative circumstance. And I, I, I just, I've seen that happen over and over again. We talked a lot about 
David Slater, that was the founder of a company called Entelic in the UK, used to talk about people taking off the suit or the uniform of their job, taking off the carapace of their organisation, which is a beautiful way of putting that. And it relates to that observation about many of the artists and scientists that are involved in the Alzheimer's work. They have a personal motivation for it, which is somewhere underneath the organisation or the way that they have for thinking. They have an emotional connection with it. So yes, all of those things. It's about not only the individual creative looking differently, but creating the possibility of other people to think and look differently or experience differently or the sense make. I think it's a yeah. useful phrase. Part three, the next new vehicle. So Dominic, what's next? I am rethinking what I do. I am talking to you from the Irish Hospice Foundation because for the last two years I've set up a program for them growing out of the pandemic looking at dying death loss and grief using creative practice so that's both people at the end of life what's what's important for them is there a role for art and creativity there also for people who are faced by loss so how do they make sense of bereavement whether that's simple or extreme or persistent that started to lead me off in the next direction i think which is partly about thinking about the role that grief plays in a life. So everybody's life will at some point have some grief in it. It's inevitable. There's being born and dying, so at some point they all happen. So what I've been exploring is what's the role of arts and creative practice within that. And that's taken me back to think about healthcare systems and acute systems. It's taken me back to think about the long-term impact. I just made a new vehicle for thinking called Creative Brain Week, which brings neuroscientists and creatives and all sorts of other people together. We just did a week where we asked people to think about conflict, imagination and joy. Because we started with what we know in Ireland, which is the long-term 40 plus years impact of of a conflict. And we know that in terms of mental health, gender-based violence, physical and emotional difficulties. But we also know that in terms of what creative interventions can do or may be able to do. And we are now in a place where we connect both the creative interventions and the research with global communities where people are looking at the results of a hundred years of conflict or being conflicted because of the way that their story is visible or not visible within the environment that they live. So I think that's beginning to be the next part of what I do. And I'm also thinking about the tools. I love this idea. I'm very fond of this idea that the vehicle that got you this far might not be the vehicle that gets you to the next bit. And so part of my answering what next is to think about what I do and how I do things and how I might change them. This is an interesting time to be me. One of the most interesting things to me about the Global Brain Health Initiative is that, at least to me, Obviously, at the center of the table is this question of dementia. It's insistent. It's urgent. There are a lot of people putting a lot of energy into it. But everybody I've talked to understands that at the end of the day, you can't actually crack that egg unless you understand how the brain works. And that leads to everything else, like what you just described. What is the role? of what's happening in our brain when humans do this thing called conflict. Mm, mm. 
you know yeah. what, what happens in our brain when people cooperate <laughs> yeah what happens in our brain when we are blind and we can we develop sensitivity through a stick so where do we stop where does the <laughs> yeah. world start um yeah and i think that's it's partly my questions have changed shape because of six or seven years of hanging out with all of these people through this extraordinary adventure and having my own kind of practice alongside it so so maybe we live in interesting times and continue to we certainly do and i have no doubt that your next chapters will continue to add fuel to the fire of what is making it interesting and uh To our listeners, as we close here, please know that this is the first of two episodes devoted to my conversation with Dominic. So tune in to episode 72, which will air on May 24th, where we'll discuss such things as artists working in cross-discipline collaborations and the power of the arts as an institutional change agent. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape is a product of the always fertile and ever-inventive musical mind of Judy Munson. Our graphics and titles are rendered by Billy Rio. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe, and our inspiration comes from the endless and eternal spark provided by the incomparable Ook 235. And if you're interested in using previous episodes of this show as a training or educational resource, please check out our cross-referenced Change the Story collection under the podcast drop-down at www.artandcommunity.com. Art and Community is all one word and all spelled out. So for now, please stay well, do good, and spread the good word. One last thing, Change the Story, Change the World is 100% human. (laughs) 